Welcome to the Colonial Hills Podcast, a ministry of Colonial Hills Baptist Church. All right, if you have your outline sheets with you this evening, you'll see it says, Ask the Pastor. People were asking me this evening that we enjoy our time down in Florida last week. We did. Uh, one of the reasons I enjoyed it is I didn't have an Ask the Pastor session. <laughs> Just kidding. There are some interesting questions, there always are, and I appreciate um, more than I can say how helpful it is to have Ask the Pastor evenings. Sometimes we go along in life, uh, whether it be in how we participate in ministry, without really thinking, well, maybe I should explain that. <laughs> and when people ask, why do we do things this way? That's, that's good, because I know if you're asking that question, others are probably thinking it. And the other thing that happens with these, honestly, there are questions that I'm asked year by year when I offer this forum that I've never thought about. And it, uh, that, that's, that's good. It's good to be stretched, and we'll see some of those uh, this evening. The first question that is asked causes us to turn in our Bibles to the book of Acts in the sixth chapter, Acts chapter 6. So we'll start there this evening. Someone asked the question, I understand how we choose our deacons, but it seems like we often have the same ones. There are several good and qualified men that don't seem to be chosen because people don't know who they are. How can we get some new men to serve as deacons? So I'm not going to take anything for granted. I'm going to go right to Acts chapter 6 and talk about how it is that we choose our deacons and some of the whys behind that. And so as we read in Acts chapter 6, the Bible says, In those days when the number of the disciples was multiplied, there arose a murmuring of the Grecians against the Hebrews. What does that mean? Well, they're both Jewish people. But some of the Jewish people spoke Greek and others of them spoke Hebrew. Well, the Grecians were murmuring against the Hebrew-speaking ones in the church because their widows, the Greek-speaking widows, were neglected in the daily ministration. What's that? Big words. That's the Meals on Wheels program that they'd set up, okay? For the widows in the church, the daily ministration was being neglected among those who spoke Greek. And so they felt like, what's going on here? Do we have a culture war going on in our church? Well, the twelve, these being the apostles, called the multitude of the disciples, that's the church family, the congregation, unto them. They said, it doesn't make sense, it's not reason, that we would leave the Word of God and serve tables. Wherefore, brethren, look you out from among you seven men of honest report, full of the Holy Ghost and wisdom, whom we may appoint over this business. But we will give ourselves continually to prayer and to the ministry of the Word, very wisely the apostles who were serving as pastors in the first church, the church in Jerusalem, set their priorities. And they said, others can help out by bringing the meals to the widows, but we have to have time for prayer, and we have to have time for the study of God's Word. Why? Well, in Ephesians chapter 4, we learned the reason why. The duty of the pastor is to feed the flock so that the flock can do the work of the ministry. And part of that work of the ministry is bringing these baskets of food. And so the Bible says here in verse 5, the saying pleased the whole multitude. So the church was content with the counsel they'd received. And they chose Stephen, a man full of faith in the Holy Ghost, and Philip, and Prochorus, and Nicanor, Timon, Parmenas, Nicholas, a proselyte of Antioch, whom they set before the apostles. And when they had prayed, they laid their hands on them. And the word of God increased, and the number of the disciples multiplied in Jerusalem greatly. The great company of the priests were obedient to the faith. 
So the strategy of the apostles was blessed of God. If we can get others to participate in ministry, God can expand ministry. But if we keep all of it to ourselves, it's going to die right with us. So ministry was expanded. But there's a key phrase here in verse 5. The saying pleased the whole multitude and they chose. Now, those that they chose are deacons. We know that because Stephen and Philip, later in the book of Acts, are called deacons. This is the election of the first deacons. And you see that word chose in verse 5? That's an interesting word. That's the Greek word eklego, from which we get our word elect. So they had an election. The church had an election. They chose the deacons. Lots of things I'd like to say about this passage, but one of the things that I've been convicted about with this passage is really what we do here at Colonial Hills Baptist Church. The apostles said, choose you out from among you. And they said that to the congregation. Seven men of honest report. Now you would think that these 12 apostles with discernment and wisdom could have said, okay, let me see. I'm going to go for Keith and I'm going to go for Dave. I'm picking on deacons here right now. But they didn't do that. They respected that the Spirit of God was abiding in the congregation. And they allowed the congregation as a voice together to choose who the deacons would be. I've been so convicted about that that I have never, since I really studied this passage, ever voted for a deacon. I've never nominated a deacon. Sometimes people will make the the wrong statement. Well, I know your deacons are going to go along with you. And I think, my deacons? You don't understand at all. Uh, Some businessmen out here, how would you like it if your board were selected by others and not by yourself? If you were the owner of a company or in a leadership position and all the board members who served around you were selected by other people. That's how I believe it ought to work. And I don't fear that at all as a pastor. I love it because I believe it indicates the unity of the church and the Spirit of God moving in the church when the congregation actually makes the choice. And me as a pastor, it's my responsibility to respect that choice. And so at Colonial, you well know, when we're selecting deacons, we may say, we need eight deacons this year, and you get a blank sheet of paper, and we're asked, put the eight names on there that you think are the best, pray about it, read 1 Timothy 3, read Acts 6, read Titus 1, make a wise, biblically informed decision. And the deacons that are selected are those who get the most votes when that blank ballot goes out. And then we ask the deacons, or those that have been selected, are you willing to serve? And so back to the question, several good qualified men that don't seem to be chosen because the people don't know who they are. So I looked at our deacons. Right now we have 25 deacons. It was interesting to do a little analysis of this. It's not something that I've done before. But I noticed that of the 25 deacons that are serving at Colonial right now, 20% of them are under 40, 50% of them are under 50, uh, 88% of them are under the age of 70. Last time we selected deacons, I believe we selected eight last June that were installed in July, and two uh, are serving this year for the first time, uh, that being Brian Gannon and Daniel Gordon. The year before that, we had another new one, and that was Kyle Olson. So of the deacons right now, 12% of them are in their first term. So I'm looking at that saying, that, that, that's good. Uh, without a nominating committee, without anybody, you know, parading their credentials, uh, God continues to work and raise some up. But let me end this question this way. Why is there some wisdom in having some who have served before 
serve again. Don't all speak at once. Yeah, Hugh. Your experience, your experience, of course. But why else? Yes, they can mentor the younger ones, and that's super important. How about some other reasons why it's it's not a bad thing for people to be selected and come off and come back on again? Did I see your hand, Steve? Okay. Nobody else? I'll give you the one I thought about. I think it's very affirming when a deacon is selected, comes off, is selected again. It affirms the capacity that God has given in that person. It's affirming to the congregation to see that continuity. And so I'm not discouraged at all when deacons are willing to serve and then go off for a year as our constitution requires or bylaws require and then come back on again. I think that's a blessing. Any follow-ups on that question? i to watch my time here. Okay, take your Bibles and go to 2 Chronicles chapter 21. Remember I said sometimes I'm asked questions that I've never been asked before. Here's one of those. And we do keep these anonymous Whoever asked this question, I've been praying for them diligently, however, so that I'll have a good spirit. No, I'm just kidding. This is, this is a challenging question. So in 2 Chronicles 21, as we read the question, Jehoram is king. All his sons are killed except Jehoahaz, his youngest. At the end of the chapter, Jehoram dies, and it's noted that he's 40 years old. Then in the beginning of chapter 22, they made his youngest son a Ahaziah, king at 42 years old. What's going on here? Has his son's name changed? And how is his youngest son two years older than him? And then the note for cross-referencing purposes, see 2 Kings 8, as Ahaziah is listed at 20 years younger. Okay, so let's follow it. Long question. So let's put ourselves in the text. 2 Chronicles chapter 21 and verse 1 introduces us to Jehoram, the son of Jehoshaphat, He was made king over Judah, so he's serving in the lineage of David, the king of Judah as opposed to the king of Israel, the nation of Israel, ten tribes have broken off, the two tribes who are faithful to the lineage of David are represented by the kings of Judah. Well, in verse 2 we read, Jehoram had five brothers, Uh, he had, and he had brethren, uh, the brethren of, of the sons of Jehoshaphat rather. Uh, Ahaziah, Jehiel, Zechariah, Azariah, Michael, Shephatiah, all these are the sons of Jehoshaphat, king of Israel. And their father gave them great gifts. He endowed them. And what happens in verse 4? Now, when Jehoram was risen up to the kingdom of his father, he strengthened himself and slew all his brethren with the sword and divers also of the princes of Israel. So in order to make sure that he would never be dispossessed of the throne, he killed his brothers. Not surprising that he did that when you look at verse 6. He walked in the ways of the kings of Israel, like as did the house of Ahab, for he had the daughter of Ahab to wife. So Jehoram killed his brothers, and no doubt his wife, who was the daughter of Ahab, was gleeful about it. God wasn't happy. How do we know? Verse 12, there came a writing to him from Elijah the prophet, saying, Thus saith the Lord God of David thy father, Because thou hast not walked in the ways of Jehoshaphat thy father, nor in the ways of Asa king of Judah, but has walked in the ways of the kings of Israel, and has made Judah and the inhabitants of Jerusalem to go a-whoring 
like the whoredoms of the house of Ahab. In other words, you're serving idols. Now slain thy brethren of thy father's house, which were better than thyself. Behold, with a great plague will the Lord smite thy people and thy children and thy wives and all thy goods. You look down at verse 18, and after all this, the Lord smote him in his bowels with an incurable disease. And it came to pass in the process of time, after the end of two years, his bowels fell out by reason of his sickness. I have no earthly idea what that means other than it doesn't sound like fun. And he died of sore diseases. His people made no burning for him like the burning of his fathers. Thirty-two years old was he when he began to reign. He reigned in Jerusalem eight years and departed without being desired. Howbeit they buried him in the city of David, but not in the sepulcher of of the kings. Here it comes. The inhabitants of Jerusalem made Ahaziah his youngest son king in his stead. For the band of men that came with the Arabians to the camp had slain all the eldest. So Ahaziah, the son of Jehoram, king of Judah, reigned. Forty-two years old was Ahaziah when he began to reign. Whoa, 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 back up. Ahaziah was 42 when he began to reign, but it tells us that his father was 32 when he started to reign in verse 20, and he reigned eight years and died at the age of 40. How did he have a 42-year-old son when he died at the age of 40? Well, come over to 2 Kings. That cross-reference is pretty interesting. 2 Kings chapter 8, and you're going to read about the same king. 2 Kings chapter 8. Ahaziah, and in 2 Kings chapter 8, we read about the ascension of Ahaziah, the son of Jehoram, 2 Kings 8, verse 25. The twelfth year of Joram, the son of Ahab, king of Israel, that's the other nation, did Ahaziah, he's the one in Judah, the son of Jehoram, king of Judah, began to reign, Twenty or two rather, and 20 years old was Ahaziah when he began to reign. He reigned one year in Jerusalem. His mother's name was Athaliah, the daughter of Omri, king of Israel. Okay, so in one passage, we're told that he's 42, and the other passage, we're told that he's 22. So what's going on here? This is called an orthographical error. What's that? Big word for... When you're reading in the Hebrew text, the Hebrew text says exactly what your King James Version says. But in the Hebrew text, the difference between 22 and 42 is one letter. So when you're writing in the Hebrew text 22, you write it with a dalif, which is the letter D. When you write 42, you write it with a mame, which is the letter M. So there's one letter difference. And that one-letter difference is in the Masoretic text. Okay, Pastor, you're getting kind of deep. Don't be afraid of it. The Masoretic text is the, is the Hebrew text that all Bible translations deal with today when people are writing Bible versions. If you're going to another country and you want to use Hebrew to write a Cambodian scripture, you're going to carry the Masoretic text. The Masoretic text was put together by the rabbis who worked with Hebrew from about 600 A.D. to about 1000 A.D. Very few people have any issues about the Masoretic text. So when you talk about textual problems, most of those problems come in the New Testament. 
So when you're dealing with textual issues in the New Testament, people will say, I, I'm totally opposed to the critical text. And others will say, I, I'm totally in favor of the, the Western text or the received text or the majority text. That's all New Testament stuff. Old Testament stuff, everybody uses the Masoretic text. In the Masoretic text of the Old Testament, you have a difference between a D and an M on the words 20 and 40. And the King James Version, it's a literal translation. The King James Version literally translates, translates the Masoretic text. So what do you think is really going on? Anybody still with me? It's Wednesday night. We had a nice meal tonight, right? What kind of an error? Okay, in one letter, but isn't this good of the Holy Spirit? In the other passage, 2 Kings clarifies for us what happened in Chronicles. So in 2 Kings, we discover what his real age of ascension is. Chronicles says he's 42, but 2 Kings in the original text says, no, he was 22. His father, having died at the age of 40, you still have an issue. What's that? Well, this one we'll get personal on. He was born when his father was 18. He's one of five kids. He's the youngest. Any problems there? You're all going, ooh. So I looked that up in Kylan Dalich, great Old Testament um, commentary, and they said, in the East, marriages are entered into at a very early age, and royal princes often had several wives plus concubines. So it, it wouldn't be extraordinary for a young prince to marry at 15 or 16 and begin having children right away. And so while he was 18 when his youngest was born, I, b I believe that's an accurate rendering of really his age when his youngest was born. And by the way, my grandmother was 14 when she married in the state of Kentucky uh, back a long time ago. She didn't have children until 16, um, and she didn't stop until she was 46. So there are weird things that happen when it comes to having kids along the way, and I won't ask for any of your testimonies, all right? But, but I'm not, I have no problem with him being 18 when his youngest son was born. But what we have here is an orthographic challenge, a letter that's changed. So I looked this up, went further with it. This is interesting. So when we talk about Bible translations, we always want to look at a Bible translation that is literal versus a translation that is dynamic. So a dynamic translation means the translators are taking advantage of what they think is right and trying to smooth things out for us. A literal translation says, this is what it says, we're going to try as best we can to go from word to word. So this was interesting. The King James Version translates it 42, which is what the Masoretic text says. The New King James Version translates it 42. The Christian Standard Bible translates it 42 in 2 Chronicles. The ESV translates it 22, and the New American Standard Version translates it 22. So what's that tell me? It tells me when you're dealing with the King James, you're dealing with a literal translation. But it also tells me that's not always the end of the questions you're going to have. Because there's a question that this one comes from the original text. and the original text, you have one letter difference, one, little, one letter variant. 
I'm going to end with the good news on this. The good news is there's a cross-reference in the Bible that helps us understand what's happening. So we're not left wondering, well, what, what happened here? All we have to do is go to 2 Kings and say, he was 22. Questions on that? Follow-up on that? Anybody still with me on it? Aren't you glad for these questions? I read that over three times before I could figure out what in the world are they asking me. And then when I started looking at it in the Scriptures, I figured out what they're asking me. Sure, no follow-ups? We're all good? Okay. All right, let's go to the book of Isaiah, chapter 7. The next question comes from Isaiah, chapter 7. Isaiah, chapter 7, the 14th verse of Isaiah 7. Isaiah 7, verse 14, therefore the Lord himself shall give you a sign. Behold, a virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel. So the question, in Isaiah 7, 14, the prophecy said that the child the virgin was to conceive was to be called Emmanuel. But the angel who appeared to Mary said to call him Jesus. Nowhere in the New Testament is he called Emmanuel, except when citing Isaiah's prophecy. The two names have different meanings. Why was Mary instructed to name him Jesus and not Emmanuel? Good question, and that's accurate. Matthew chapter 1 says he would be called Emmanuel, which in Matthew 1, it's bringing out the point that that's a fulfillment of Isaiah chapter 7. But if you come over to Isaiah chapter 9, I think we have the answer Right next door in Isaiah chapter 9 and verse 6, we know this one. I love the Messiah. I play the Messiah every Christmas. And so we know verse 6, right? I won't sing it for you, but I'm tempted. For unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given. No big deal that a child's born. Children are born all the time, but this is the only son that's ever been given. And his, the government will be upon his shoulder. His name will be called Wonderful Counselor, the Mighty God, the Everlasting Father, the Prince of Peace. Well, point of fact is, the angel did say, you'll call his name Jesus. And there's a reason why he's called Jesus. Jesus was a common name in the time of Christ. It's a composite word. It means Jehovah is salvation. And it's the perfect name for his earthly ministry because it portrays his humility in coming as a man among men and yet God. He is the one who is to save. And so he came as one that was not recognized. Isaiah says he'll come humbly. If they would have said, call him Emmanuel, well, everybody would say, nobody's called Emmanuel, but he came humbly. But his character is such, and the facets of his character are so many that no singular name can adequately portray the wonder of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so, while Isaiah 9 says his name will be called Wonderful, and it is, Counselor, the Mighty God, the Everlasting Father, the Prince of Peace, those were not any of the names he was using during his earthly pilgrimage. In his earthly ministry, he was Jesus. And so, when we ask the question, why wasn't he called Emmanuel? Emmanuel reveals for us another facet of his great character. He is God with us, full of glory, and yet called Jesus, apropos to the earthly ministry that he accomplished. And so we would still call him Emmanuel, God with us, as we call him Wonderful and Counselor, but God prescribed the name that would be used by him in his earthly ministry. And there are many other names that he has. 
Do you remember the song, There Have Been Names That I Have Loved to Hear, but never has there been a name so dear as that precious name, the precious holy name of Jesus. Jesus is the sweetest name I know. And it really is, because every time we say it, we ought to be reminded, He came to provide salvation. He came to provide my salvation. Follow up on that question? Okay. Do people who are intellectually challenged or disabled to the point of not understanding salvation have a place in heaven? Well, since we're in Isaiah, let's start the answer there. This just happened to fall this way. Come back with me to Isaiah chapter 7. We were just looking at the name Emmanuel. Look what it continues to say. If you remember the context of Isaiah chapter 7, the children of Israel have adversaries that are threatening their very existence. And the prophet goes to the king and has a conversation. And the conversation ends up with this prophecy being made in verse 14 regarding one who will come whose name will be Emmanuel. And then it says this, butter and honey shall he eat that he may know to refuse the evil and choose the good. For behold, the child shall know, before, before the child shall know refuse the evil and choose the good. The land that thou abhorrest shall be forsaken of both her kings. All right, this passage talks about there's a passing of time in which a child learns to discern between the good and the evil. I think that's a good observation to go with the question we're being asked. Do people who are intellectually challenged, disabled beyond the point of understanding salvation, have a place in heaven? Well, God clearly recognizes that in our development, there is typically a moving from recognition of good and evil, a a discernment that comes with regard to moral verities and truth. That's the natural progress. But not everyone is given the privilege of that natural process. Take your Bibles and go with me to the book of Nehemiah. The book of Nehemiah. Ezra, Nehemiah, Esther, Job. Nehemiah. Nehemiah chapter 8. I love Nehemiah chapter 8. It tells the story of a revival. Nehemiah, the builder of the walls, gathers the people together, and Ezra the scribe brings a book, the end of verse 8, or verse 1, chapter 8. They gathered together in the street that was before the water gate, and that's before the hotel was ever built. For those of you who are old enough to remember that. Okay, they gathered together themselves in the street by the water gate. They spake unto Ezra the scribe to bring the book of the law to Moses, which the Lord had commanded Israel. And Ezra the priest brought the law before the congregation, both of men and women, and all that could hear with understanding upon the first day of the seventh month. We have another passage in God's Word that reflects upon the fact that some can understand and some can't. Some can discern and some can't. Now, this is interesting in verse 2. He brings the Word of God before the congregation of men and women and all those who, could under, who had understanding. Who was absent? By the way, they read therein before the street that was before the water gate from the morning until the midday before the men and the women and those that could understand. He says it again. Who's not there? Well, children, why do you make that comment? Oh, you can back it up. Can all children understand? No. 
in fact, the Apostle Paul writes, and he says in 1 Corinthians 13, when I was a child, I thought as a child, and I understood as a child. But when I became a man, I put away childish things. I would submit to you, it seems, that from Nehemiah chapter 8, the children were not in attendance at this service. He was reading to the men and the women. That's what it says. It doesn't say the children. And the others that weren't in attendance in this service where God brought this revival, those who didn't have understanding, perhaps they had dementia or Alzheimer's. Perhaps they were not fit intellectually to be able to understand what was being read. I don't know all of that, but I do know that as they read in this particular congregation, this assembly, that's who was there. We're moving toward getting an answer. And as we move toward getting an answer, we've, we've at least come to this understanding. The Bible says there are some who don't know good from bad. We grow to that typically. We grow to that understanding. The Bible represents in Nehemiah chapter 8 that there were some who were not there. Who might those be? Well, those who are assumed not to have understanding. Go to Jonah chapter 4, and in Jonah chapter 4, we'll, we'll land this question, Lord willing. We visited Jonah chapter 4 in a series of messages this past summer. Remember how Jonah is really upset because Nineveh wasn't destroyed? And God says, uh, hey, Jonah, chill out. That's my translation. It's, it's dynamic equivalent. So Jonah, knock it off. And God says, Jonah, doest thou well to be angry, verse 9? And of course, he responds, yes, I do well to be angry, even unto death. And the Lord says, you had pity on the gourd, which you had not labored, neither make to, made to grow, which came up at night and perished at not, in a night. Should not I spare Nineveh, that great city wherein are more than six score thousand persons, 120,000 people that can't discern between their right hand and their left, and also much cattle. God spared Nineveh because he looked down in his mercy, he saw 120,000 people who fit this category. They didn't have understanding. And because of that, God had grace. And so back to the question, I believe that grace is sufficient even today and tomorrow and forever. Yes, I believe that those who don't have sufficient understanding to receive and hear and understand the gospel, I think that God, the same grace of God that allowed Nineveh to be spared will allow them to enter into heaven. That's where I stand on it. Follow-up questions? Yeah, Anita? That's why we have Children's Church. Yeah. Um, in, in fact, I was just working on a little article for our Colonial Connection to come out tomorrow celebrating our Children's Church. And I noted in the article that the first nine years that Linda and I were married, I don't think we went to a morning service maybe more than 15, 20 times, and most of those were on vacation. I was in Children's Church for about nine solid years. I love Children's Church. Uh, somebody told me a long time ago, if you can keep children's attention for 30 minutes, adults are easy. No kidding. So for all you teachers out there, I, I understand that. In fact, one of the best things about having a pastor who spent nine years, I did nine years of, of hard labor in, in children's church. And one of the blessings of that, you'll find that most of the services that we host here are out on time. Why? I think I just mentioned, I did nine years in children's church. 
And I remember looking up the clock, when's he going to be done? You know, there, there's only so many sword drills and hangman lessons that you can do along the way to, to keep that clock going. Uh, so I, I tend to be on time because I have great respect for those who are doing children's church. But what Anita's point is, is valid. Um, children don't think the same way. They don't receive information the same way. That's exactly what the Apostle Paul is saying in at 1 Corinthians 13. They don't receive information. When I became a man, I put away childish things. But when I was a child, I understood as a child and I thought as a child. And I, I think there's some merit for us to realize um, reaching a child on their level uh, is, a, is a wonderful thing. And not all of them are on the same level either, are they? Anita, go ahead. Children's church. Yeah. Amen. That's right. Yeah. Yeah, you bring it down to their level. The Bible has words they don't understand. Um, when I was doing my graduate work, and I did a lot of it, um, I was a youth pastor. That was really good. I was working in children's church. I was youth pastoring. When I earned my doctorate, I was watching over a five-year-old uh, junior church. And I, I learned something. They had no interest at all in superlapsarianism. I mean, didn't mean anything to them. Um, sublapsarianism, they didn't even know the difference between superlapsarianism and sublapsarianism. And so I, I tended to not talk about that very much in children's church. And, and I tend to not talk about it much even in adult church because I realize that we, the responsibility of the pastor teacher is to bring it down so that that which is complex can be understood. We're not here to impress anybody. We're here to share God's Word with His best ability God can give us. 1 Corinthians chapter 11. 1 Corinthians chapter 11. I know this text. Um, when I was a teenager, long hair was in. And I was into it. And people ask me, you know, or notice, you know, Pastor, it seems like you're losing hair. Really? Um, I think it's God's judgment on me for pushing the hair length when I was a kid. My dad told me not to. In fact, one time my dad sent me back to the barbershop. I came home from the barbershop. He said, no, 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 that's not good enough. I know for some of you young people, you think, what? Well, back then, you know, shaggy and, and long was, was the good thing. So there was a song that we learned in youth group. It went like this. First Corinthians 11 is still in the book. I know that it's there, for I just took a look. For a man to have long hair, it says, is a shame. I've never forgotten that. So as soon as I saw 1 Corinthians 11, I went, man, I'm back in my teen years. That's a, so here's the question. 1 Corinthians 11:14 14 considers it a dishonor for men to have long hair. Most depictions of Christ have him wearing long hair. Should we surmise that the, the depictions of Christ or the depiction of Christ is false and that he had short hair? Yes. All right, question number six. <laughs> Tell you an inside story. This is kind of funny. So when my wife and I got married, we were married in her home church, of course, and they had a rose window behind the, uh, the, the platform. A rose window is a, a, a stained glass round window. Beautiful picture of the Lord, the good shepherd, with a, a lamb and lambs around his feet. And I've, I've always admired our wedding pictures, it just sets the wedding pictures off. Here's, here's the wedding party and that beautiful stained glass window. That's really attractive. So I was involved in building a church auditorium a number of years ago, and sheetrock's cheap. Stained glass isn't. 
And so we got to thinking about how are we going to set this building off, and I thought, man, we need a rose window. So well, how are we going to design it? Oh, I don't even have to design it. I just take the picture of the one that I saw. So we, I went to Minnesota, I measured it, took a picture of it, brought it back and found a stained glass artist and said, can you make this? And the stained glass artist taught me something I didn't know. She said, no, I can't. I said, really? I thought you were a stained glass. That's what this said. No, no, I can't make that because that would be stealing another artist's property. Oh, I said, well, I don't want it to look exactly like this anyway. She said, what do you mean? I said, well, can you put the lambs on the other side? Okay. Switch the sides. Can you make uh, a little bit more color over here because it'll look good with the decor? And can you cut Jesus' hair? She said, really? I said, absolutely. We're going to have Jesus with the right hair, hair length in our church. So no joke. If you look at the state glass window in the church where I was in New England, the hair is up above the ears. Uh, I never ever once had anybody even noticed that. But, it, but I felt good about it because 1 Corinthians 11 is still in the book, right? So I had learned. Um, so let's look at 1 Corinthians 11. 1 Corinthians 11, Paul argues in verse 14, saying, Doth not even nature itself teach you that if a man have long hair, it's a shame to him. Now, you better be really careful with how you look at the word nature in 1 Corinthians eleven fourteen, because that same word is used back in Romans 1, and verse 26, the very same word. And look what's happening in Romans chapter 1 and verse 26. In Romans chapter 1, verse 26 says, For this cause God gave them up unto vile affections, for even their women did change the natural use into that which is against nature. So, when we look at the word nature in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, we've got to be careful because it's the same word that's being used in Romans chapter 1 and verse 26. So what we don't want to do is what some people do, unfortunately. They say, well, nature there means that's what they were doing at the time. It was natural for the time. Men had short hair. Doesn't, you know, it's like a custom. It's what nature means there. If you say that, you just open the door in Romans. And you're, now you're saying that... It, for the custom of our times, um, homosexual and lesbian relationships are okay. So you better be careful. So when you come to this word, what does nature mean in 1 Corinthians chapter 11? Some people will say, well, it means like it's just natural. I mean, um, women naturally have better hair texture and, you know, it tends to grow longer. And, you know, it, it's kind of like the lions, you know. No, wait a minute. No, that's wrong because lions have more hair. Some people will go to nature and say, it's like, you know, animals, right? So men shouldn't have long hair because we learn that from the animals, right? No, you don't learn it from the animals because the male bird has more plumage and the lion has more hair. So what does nature teach us here? Well, I, I think what's being taught here is basically what it's, being, what it's sa- saying that there are differences between the sexes that are observable, that are natural, that are to be respected. So, does not even nature, the observable difference between a man and a woman that's typically respected, doesn't it teach you that for a man to have long hair, it's a shame unto him. Now pause, 
So, when you see pictures on your quarters, and there's George Washington with a powdered wig, did he have a problem? And the answer to that is, you don't see pictures of his wife sporting a powdered wig because the powdered wig was symbolic of a man at that time. And so what I believe this is saying is a man ought to look like a man and a woman ought to look like a woman. And there are things that you're going to note to that end. That's a natural, those natural distinctions. So I would be very uncomfortable in front of you this evening, obviously, in a skirt. But I'm not, a, I'm not Scottish either. So in Scotland, some guy may be sporting a skirt, and I'm not going to call him effeminate. <laughs> Even if I'm tempted, I'm not that stupid, right? So that is symbolic of manhood. I think that's what this is saying, that those symbols which demonstrate femininity and masculinity need to be respected. Dan. So Samson had long hair in the Old Testament, and it was, it was an enigma. It was, a, it was something required of God for those who were um, Nazarite vows. So in the Nazarite vow, they did something that was countercultural, and it was understood in the counterculture that this is a countercultural move, and typically it was for a time. He was from his birth by his parents and by the command of God, but he wasn't the norm. He is the enigma. So if a guy came in and said, hey, pastor, I'm growing my hair long because I've taken a Nazarite vow, I'm like, cool. You're the first person I've ever met that's done that. And you realize that he had other things that were abnormal. He could never touch a dead body. He could never drink wine. He could never cut his hair. Uh, the Nazarite vows came with other things. But the outward demonstration of it that set him apart in his culture was he's different. Why? Because he doesn't cut his hair. Uh, he wasn't trying to look like a woman. That wasn't the purpose for it. And I think that's important to it too, Dan. The, if you're trying to look like a woman, you're out of line. Eleazar. Yeah, so there's a difference between a Nazarite and a Nazarene. It's kind of like an orange and a tangerine. Same family, different meanings. So Natsar is a Hebrew word, and the word Natsar means root. Okay? So a Nazarene is one who takes a vow. A Nazarite is a person who lives in the village of Nazareth. So it, it's different. It's diff, diff, oh, I got it backwards. See there? So a Nazarene, like I said, a Nazarene is a person who comes from Nazareth, and a Nazarite is somebody who takes a vow. I know where I'm going, but sometimes I don't know how I'm getting there. Hugh. Amen. Hugh, Hugh presents a principle that I really appreciate, and it, it's true to who you are. That, and you know, he said, you know, the, you don't want to be running up to a new Christian saying, "Hey, dude, get your hair cut." Haven't you read First Corinthians eleven? Haven't you heard Pastor sing that song? Come on, let's go. Um, exactly. And, but your observation is wonderful. That the Spirit of God does make a difference, and it shows up even in our styles. That's that's a, a wonderful thing, Hugh. I always try to say it this way, uh, knowing that we're supposed to speak the truth in love, if I have something that I know could be a challenging message, I want to be sure that the bridge of love has been built through a relationship that's honest.
before I share that challenging message. Last thing I'd ever want to do is provoke a stranger, even if I'm right. So I want to make sure that they know my heart toward them is right. That's a really good observation. This podcast has been a ministry of Colonial Hills Baptist Church, a church home for all people. If what you've heard has been an encouragement to you, please subscribe on iTunes, Spotify, or Google Podcasts. If you'd like to connect with Colonial or find more resources, you can find us online at colonialindy.org. You can also check us out on Facebook and Twitter. Thanks for joining us today, and we hope to see you next time on the Colonial Hills Podcast. Thank you.